On today's episode, a Palestinian production of Hamlet in the West Bank forms the backdrop for the novel Enter Ghost. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. The novelist Isabella Hamad won international acclaim for her first novel, The Parisian, in 2019. That novel won a slew of prizes, and Granta included Hamad in its decennial Best of Young British Novelists list earlier this year. The narrator of Hamad's new novel, Enter Ghost, is Sonia, a British-Palestinian actress who visits her sister in Israel to recover from the end of a relationship. Despite wanting to take a break from the stage, Sonia gets roped into playing Gertrude in a production of Hamlet being mounted in the West Bank. Sonia's fellow actors read Hamlet as an allegory for the Palestinian struggle. Sonia resists this oversimplified interpretation. But in the course of rehearsals, Sonia uncovers ghosts of her own, repressed memories, a family history of resistance, and a newly discovered commitment to the Palestinian cause. Despite the novel's contemporary setting and political themes, Hamad never lets her character's trenchant views overwhelm the complex beauty of her storytelling. Here's Isabella Hamad in conversation with Barbara Bogave. I had read somewhere that you finished your first book, The Parisian, and, and you were just, just writing to find a story, just, you know, seeing what came out of you. And this character, Sonia, emerged. Is that, how, is that true? Yes, exactly. I was on a on a residency and uh, just writing and writing, and I kind of came upon her. So she's she's Palestinian, but she's acting in in London. So she's kind of uh, the the heir of of two literary and political traditions, and seeing the sort of crossover. I also at the time was reading Peter Brook's The Empty Space and thinking about mm. different kinds of theatre and their operations. What is live theatre? What is dead theatre? And so on. Oh, now that makes sense because you, I was wondering why an actor of all people, you know, were you already thinking along the lines of politics or activism as performance, which really is Peter Brooks kind of at the heart of what he writes about in, in theater. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and also a kind of um, political activism also as being kind of um, potentially something that uses spectacle as well. Well, this might be a great point for you to uh, do a reading uh, about acting. Uh, And it's right at the beginning of your book, and it it really kind of set the stage for me with your main characters. And if you could set it up for us and tell us a little bit about uh, some of the characters named Miriam and Hanin, as as mentioned. Sure. So the protagonist, who is the narrator, is called Sonia, and she has just arrived at Haifa to visit her sister, She's kind of come on a holiday, essentially. She's trying to get away from the theatre world because she's had a disastrous affair with a, with a director. And she very quickly meets her sister's friend, Mariam, who is a, a local theatre director. And Mariam says to her, Can I ask you something? What is it you like about acting? I laughed again more loudly. Mariam, unperturbed, awaited my reply. Even Hanin was watching me with interest. The heat of Mariam's sincerity felt like a sunbeam on my face. She irritated me. At the same time, I found her curiously appealing. As she grabbed her mug, I noticed she had large hands and bendy thumbs. My mind relented to her question and I thought of our cardinal. I thought of that rare, marrow-deep sensation in the rehearsal room. 
I've been acting for 20 years, I said. Mariam looked at me serenely. My answer was incomplete and she would wait for me to finish it. I didn't know this woman. There was no need to answer truthfully. And it was true that there had been times in my life when I felt my work had saved me, transcending its function as a trade in a way that seemed, embarrassingly, to concern my soul. I didn't know that was what I liked about acting. But the occasional glimmers of something that looked like meaning had obviously played a role in keeping me going. There was no way I could say this aloud, although I suspected it was the sort of thing she was after. I could tell she had an American-style ease with matters of the heart, or maybe I should say a thespian's ease, something which, presumably, I myself had once possessed and lost somewhere along the way. I don't do it because I like it, I said. I do it because it's my profession. There's so much in that passage. It tells so much about Sonia. Uh, it, it, I was reading it thinking, oh, she is such an actress. She soaks up all of these impressions. She's so attuned to uh, the emotional tenor of, of, of the people around her. And she's thinking all of this in a nanosecond. And then she, I just love that opposition of what she's thinking and what she ends up saying. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's very actorly, isn't it? This kind of, you know, when you, um, uh, you know, looking at subtext, essentially, that having the intention behind a, behind a, a line of dialogue to be actually diametrically opposite to what the kind of content of the dialogue is. And that produces a sort of interesting surface tension. It's definitely it, something I was playing with there. Exactly. And she has this whole backstory going on and then she plays a role. She just lies. <laughs> right. In a way. Right. She acts. She hides what actors give and what they withhold. It's so, it's so interesting. So you take an actor and you put her in Palestine where the, where the stakes are so high for your performance. Hmm. I mean, you can end up in a riot or shot by soldiers or arrested. Um, and the first thing I thought was, oh, it's just like in Shakespeare's time. Is that how you got to Shakespeare? <laughs> I actually, I mean, I think that many of Shakespeare's plays are perfect for modern day Middle Eastern contexts in a sense because of the political dynamics. There are lots of potential resonances more than you might say in like Western democracies. But I actually partly came to Shakespeare because he's so actually global it's a, it's a tradition that, oh, yes, he's from England, but he's so global. There's a Soviet tradition. There's an Arab tradition. There are all these ways in which uh, the texts are transferable that I felt that there were things I could pull out that might be widely accessible to, to readers. So even if, a, even if a reader has only a cursory knowledge of Shakespeare or Hamlet, they'll still, they'll still probably remember a few signifiers, maybe just to be or not to be, or the presence of a ghost. These things I could play upon, and obviously with different levels, different, depending on the depth of a reader's knowledge. And of course, the, the other side of that global coin is that Shakespeare is the ultimate literary example of colonialism. And of course, colonialism in this particular political context is very highlighted in your, in your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, Hamlet itself, this is something I discovered um, through the work of a scholar called Margaret Litvin. Uh, Hamlet itself is a play, rather than some of the other plays like Othello or The Tempest, has been less subject to a post-colonial kind of revisionism and more it has a specific tradition in the Middle East of actually, he's a kind of ally, Hamlet becomes an ally for, for revolution, he becomes a kind of revolutionary figure. So he's sort of interestingly claimed by the kind of Arab theatrical tradition 
in a way that's sort of in support of anti-colonial struggle, which I also thought was very interesting. Oh, that is. And there's a wonderful scene about Shakespeare and Palestinian theater in your book in which the director, Miriam, keeps saying, don't be afraid of Shakespeare. And the actors all start saying, oh, yeah, f*** Shakespeare. And, and someone says, there's a version of Hamlet in Arabic that has a happy ending. Is that is that yeah, true? Is yeah. that another Hamlet? Yeah, there is. A, I can't remember who the translator is. I think it's an Egyptian version from the 19th century that gives it a happy ending where he becomes king and it's happily ever after, um, which is quite funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I kind of looked at a variety of Arabic translations of Shakespeare, of, of Hamlet specifically, to try and get a sense of the way he'd been received in the Arab world. The tradition... You know, after 1948, um, the tradition of theatre in Palestine was a political tradition. You know, as with all the arts, they were committed to dealing with the context of the new Israeli state and being colonised and articulating positions of resistance against that colonisation. So in a way, what, what I was trying to deal with was the, the kind of later question of the efficacy of that use of art or that use of theatre. Is it useful? Is it, a, is it actually an effective mode of of resisting, or or is this a sort of 1970s idea of what we might do with our art in context of oppression? Another moment I loved is uh, Sonia at one point just says, why don't we just make Ophelia a suicide bomber and call it a day? And and Mariam, the director, says, we can't. Somebody already did a version like that quite recently. Very seriously responding to this flippant comment because the stakes are so high politically and, and, and spiritually, but also theater is just, it's it's a business and it involves funding and innovation and butts and seats. And, and Mariam is very much torn between her idealism and just, you know, being a theater runner. Again, I should name check that that was Slayman and Bassam who did uh, who did the production with Sophia as a suicide bomb, and that was a little joke. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's happened. Yeah. Um, okay, back to Hamlet. So once you started thinking about memory and hauntings and the intersection of family dynamics and and politics, uh, was Hamlet inevitably the play your actor or protagonist would perform? Well, actually, I started thinking about doing a Macbeth. I don't know why I thought of Macbeth. I think I like, I also like Macbeth as a play. And then, and then I hit upon Hamlet, and it seemed actually a bit more more natural as an option. But I, bec- I was really interested in the fact that during the, I think it was the first Intifada, Hamlet was banned in Israeli prisons because the to be or not to be speech was seen as a call to arms or a militant resistance to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that was very kind of provocative to my imagination. So I ran with it. And then because my protagonist is a woman and she plays the mother, the theme of, of mothers became very central to the novel um, and the role of the mother, particularly as that has its own specific resonance in the iconography of Palestinian resistance or some of the images that are, that are propagated about mothers, the mother of the fighter as a kind of Mother Mary figure. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about ghosts. So many of your characters, not just Sonia, are haunted by by generations past and the ghosts of their ancestors. And and that's inevitable given the history and the present day reality of, of Palestine. But Sonia is haunted both by history and her personal past. This, this The dimensions of this theme, I was thinking as I read, are just so vast. Did you have a literary model for tackling it besides Hamlet? I don't know that I, not consciously, 
But then I did subsequently reread Beloved by Toni Morrison. And I realized that that's, you know, there are certain books you read when you're, when you're young, when you're a teenager, usually that, that I feel, you know, uh, start to constitute your <laughs> areas of your brain. I think that was one of those books. Yeah, they're And indelible. I could see that there was, yes, and it sort of like becomes part of you. And I, that was, that definitely was one of those books. And obviously there's a very crucial role played by a ghost in that in that book, where the ghost also is more than the ghost of a single child, it's actually the ghost of a collective. And I can that maybe subconsciously I was perhaps drawing on that as a model, but I think I, I think that was definitely unconscious. I think I was feel, I felt my way through it without a master plan. If that makes sense. Well, it's interesting because you have ghosts going both ways in time. I mean, the ghosts of previous generations, but also the modern generations haunt the previous ones as well. Sonia's father refers to what's going on as a zombie apocalypse in Palestine, the Palestinians who, who never left. Right. Well, that's, a, that's because it was an incomplete massacre. So the Palestinians survived in uh, 1948. Um, many of them did. Uh, and there was a percentage that even managed to stay on the land that weren't, weren't expelled, didn't become refugees. And Sonia's family is is part of that population. So they, um, after a period of military rule, um, became citizens of the Israeli state. Uh, and they still had their home, amazingly, in Haifa, which is very unusual. So that population, they, they haunt the Israelis in a sense of the reminder of the ethnic cleansing of 1948. And that also is another, you know, yeah, that the future generations might continue to, to do some haunting and that haunting itself might be a kind of political act, I think is... Is quite interesting. Ghosts always suggest something that needs to be done, something that's not complete, something that's unfinished. Right, whether it's in your unconscious or your subconscious or reality in this case. Uh, well, one of the many ghosts in your, in your book is a young boy from Bethlehem, Rashid, who goes on a hunger strike. And Sonia sees him when she's a teenager. She's on a trip with her sister, Hanin. And it's her first real experience of the Intifada. Um, she's been hearing about it or watching it in the abstract on, on TV. And this is a pivotal moment in the book for both these sisters when they're very young. And it's a really moving scene. Uh, maybe you could tell me about writing this scene and what you were exploring in it about memory and, and turning points for these women. I was, ex I mean, it's a, it's a, central moment for both sisters it's it is very formative for both of them it's the first time that they're exposed to a visual example of someone suffering and struggling against israeli oppression until then they've been living they're only in haifa and they're and they're seeing they're witnessing the intifada and the uprising through the television screen so they're sort of in a political environment as children but they're not directly witnessing it so this is a kind of first instance of them properly witnessing it and for, whereas Hanin, this becomes part of her narrative of commitment, as Mariam phrases it later on. For Sonia, it's something she runs away from. She finds it so harrowing, she actually can't really cope with it. She run, goes running in the other direction. Um, but it, it continues to haunt her. And it's the sort of occasion that binds and divides the sisters in, in, this, in this way. Yeah, and it is pivotal in their relationship. And, and you, you get the sense that it's kind of an unknowing on this young Sonia's part, almost willful, like, I can't see that. Or maybe she's too young. It's funny because in the book, in your book, I wrote 
a note just, sisters, exclamation point. <laughs> you know, you're so enmeshed as sisters. And something like this can just start as a seed and it grows, 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 becomes this, it snowballs. Definitely. I'm, I've been very thinking a lot lately about uh, recognition scenes, kind of Aristotelian idea of anagnorisis or recognition at a point of reversal or a turning point of the action in a play and how that might um, figure in, in narrative fiction and novels. And I think this is one of those moments because anagnorisis is always a, com- a, a coming to know something you sort of already knew on some level but refused to look at, which is itself very psychoanalytic. You know, you're kind of avoiding, on some level you know, but you're denying it and then you turn to face it and, and that experience changes you. And that's, that's sort of what happens to Sonia when she finds out what happened to Rashid? Now I'm giving away the end. <laughs> but but, um, but, uh, but she, but she oh. sort of, re- she kind of realizes that she had, that she had, you know, the way in which she had run away from it. Um, it's a sort of understanding of her own obligations as well as a Palestinian, um, and a confronting of her own ambivalence, political ambivalence. Yeah, it's really interesting because as a child, I can't really expect her to have come away politicized from that experience the way her older sister was. But I mean, we write our own narrative, right, of our life. And so this this becomes her narrative. Um, and the other side of that is, is uh, that she's playing Gertrude and her interpretation of Gertrude and many people's interpretation of Gertrude in Hamlet is that kind of willful unknowing. I, I suspect maybe that Claudius did this awful thing. Uh, I'm half complicit, but I, I'm, I'm confused and I don't want to look there. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, but, but also Gertrude doesn't say very much. She has almost no lines. <laughs> so she's also this object of projection, mm. um, as mothers often are anyway. The figure of the mother is often an object of projection. Um, but, it, but it allows for all the kind of, um, uh, all of that kind of ambiguity in a sense about whether or not the degree to which she knows or doesn't know. Yeah. Now, switching gears, how much did you study Hamlet and what books did you read about Hamlet before and while you were writing this? I mean, I read Margaret Lippmann's book, which is about Hamlet, specifically in Egypt, but I didn't read that many books about Hamlet, I have to say. I think I didn't, I, I mainly relied on my memory of studying Hamlet as a school child, which made a great impression on me as a, as a school child. I guess I was probably about 16 or 17 when I, when I studied it. And I really loved the play. I loved particularly the way in which um, what seemed to me a kind of meta-fictional, meta-theatrical um, element of the play in that it is a, it's, it follows the model of a revenge tragedy, but you have an unwilling, he's unwillingly playing the part, mm. sort of fighting the role and then committing to it. Once he kills Polonius, it seems to me he, he's, he's now killed someone, so he has to, he has to follow through on the, on the revenge tragedy. And that I found very moving. As a child, um, you were a very sophisticated reader. As a child, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, teenager, maybe teenager. Um, But then, you know, I I studied at university, and I I found it really hard to study Shakespeare academically. So maybe there's also some way in which this is my my own I don't know recuperation of my my failure to write about Shakespeare um, as a as an undergraduate. Well, you explore it amazingly in this book, and you have this great scene of reading reading through as a troupe, as an acting troupe, the to-be speech in rehearsal. And maybe could you read it for us and, and set it up by telling us who Wael is? 
So Wael is um, a pop star. He is a cousin of Mariam's and he is a refugee who lives in, in the West Bank. And he's been cast as Hamlet, despite the fact that he has no experience of acting, largely because Mariam is hoping to draw um, a big crowd and Wael can draw a big crowd. Wael clears his throat. A'akun am la'akun, Shall I be or not be? That is the question. Whether it is nobler of the soul that a man should suffer the slings of outrageous fortune and her arrows. Or to draw weapons against a sea of troubles. And by opposing them, end them. We die, we sleep. That is lovely. Thank you. It's it's wonderful to hear the Arabic and then the translation of the Arabic, which I think is a very specific translation that you chose. Well, it's a, yeah, the translation is by um, Jabra, Ibrahim Jabra, who uh, was from Bethlehem. And I sort of like freely, and I guess badly translated it back into English um, as a way of just De, slightly defamiliarizing the text. So it's a sort of worse version of Hamlet than Shakespeare's Hamlet. But I, I wanted to un, unshackle perhaps the English language reader's familiarity with, um, with Shakespeare's lines. Because in a, there's a funny way in which much of Shakespeare having entered English language idiom becomes close to cliche, becomes so familiar because the, the phrases have become, uh, I don't know, sayings almost, that I, I wanted to kind of break that down and get to the get to the substance rather than the poetry if that makes sense no that does because your mind kind of goes blank or 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 freezes when you see the such familiar lines and this kind of frees it up or it thaws it i thought um it's interesting in the sections in which the actors are rehearsing you change your style and you you write them like a script like scenes from a play uh it's a, it's a lot of fun, and it gave me a whole different view of your protagonist, Sonia, because we're seeing her from above instead of be inside, being inside her, her brain. Um, what prompted that? that? That's great to hear. That was kind of one of the aims, in a way, was to release the narrative voice from being inside Sonia's perspective, um, because that's kind of one of the elements or kind of features of having a first-person narration is that you can start to feel a little trapped inside the eye and this was a this was a valve uh, to get out of the eye and make Sonia just one of many, one of the troop, and to equalize all the voices in the room. It also was a, a fun way of having quick fire chat among the cast without having to have the sort of clogging mechanisms of um, who's standing where and feeling what and and who says what, and you kind of get rid of all the sets and just have the name and then the speech. Um, so it allowed me to experiment with that and then and to sort of play with the other kinds of resonances of having something in, in play script, which suggests that it's something yet to be done, for example, or it uh, suggests that they're all they're always playing roles. Right. They're not the godlike narrator. Yeah. They have dimensions exactly. and hidden hidden depths or hidden hidden unknowingness. Um, and, and the other thing I think that those scenes evoke for me, written as a script, 
is both these exuberance and the the otherworldliness of of actors caught up in this group effort, something larger than themselves. It it reinforces how theatrical everything in a political conflict is. Uh, all the acting going on at military checkpoints, for instance, uh, both on the part of the soldiers and the and the civilians traveling. Definitely. I think colonial contexts are very theatrical. So there's a lot of performance going on and costumes and and role playing. And that was definitely something I wanted to to play with and to explore. Often I think it's at border crossings or checkpoints or points at you know, those these points of interface between those in control and those who are subjugated, that that, that those roles get a get exploded in a way, both explored and exploded. Well, I think all of these ideas kind of come together in the scene towards the end of the book in which the cast is in a final dress rehearsal of Hamlet. And and Sonia, your protagonist, has this out-of-body experience as she's acting. Maybe you, if, if it's okay, could you, could you read this yeah. for us on page 224? Yeah. So this is to introduce this. Um, they have just found out that uh, one of the cast, Merjid, is going to be interrogated. Um, and they think it's probably because the brother of the director, Mariam, is called Salim. He's a member of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. And he's been involved in the, in the fundraising um, and has uh, recently been suspended from parliament. And so there's a kind of sense in which the issue of funding is has drawn the attention of the of the state to the to the to the play, um, and uh, basically has put the play under threat. I was thirsty as well, and I needed the loo. And in this state of physical discomfort, something strange happened. My viewpoint switched, and as though I were in a dream, and my perspective had been breached, I moved like a surveillance drone, and saw our project from above situated fragilely in time and space, this summer, this side of the wall. Accompanying this vision was a fear, almost a premonition, that it was all foretold anyway. Everything had been decided in advance. We were only acting parts that had been given to us, and now some inexorable machinery was being set in motion that would sooner or later throw our efforts out into the audience, dismantle our illusions, and leave us cowering before the faceless gods of fate and state. So this is really just wild. Uh, Sonia's having, or the way I interpreted it, she was having a kind of inside the matrix moment. Uh, it's as if she's in a, <laughs> in a play within a play. It's like the play within a play in Hamlet, or or it or it felt like a physical embodiment of political determinism. So maybe you could unpack this epiphany for us. I love that. I mean, I think that that's true. I think that, that, that I mean, um, maybe in the way that I was moved by Hamlet uh, struggling inside the, the narrative framework that Shakespeare has put on, uh, I'm somehow moved by, by the metafictional, I think. I find it moving, suggests, because of what it suggests about fate um, and fatedness. So maybe there is a way in which, even though I'm only articulating for the first time now, that I was kind of doing that there. There was a sort of gesture at that, that within the context of the novel, which is itself an artifice, um, my character is seeing um, a structure where fate um, is kind of like the, the narrative force is a kind of fate. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But And it also has this very personal dimension, which is it's, it's another moment when this very typically self-involved actor becomes less self-focused. 
Yeah, which is part of her journey, essentially. Kind of the journey of Sonia is a different kind of acting, where it's less about being an actor on a in a Western marketplace, um, where it's about her on her own, to being part of a troupe, sort of seeing herself as part of a collective in a more direct way, um, which is about, you know, less kind of individualistic, I guess. Yeah, and she has these glimpses of it moments. At one point, she thinks... Um... She thinks nothing is more flattering to an artist than the illusion that he is a secret revolutionary. But it is an underlying question uh, throughout the book. You know, what is the value of theater or any art form in a political conflict? Um, has your answer evolved as you write? Not really. I mean, I think that I wanted to explore all all angles of that. I think that one thing that obviously distinguishes theater from other art forms is how directly it's related to the polis or, you know, to crowds. Um, whereas reading a novel, we read it on our own. You know, it's usually it's a solitary experience of art. There's something about theatre that can be can be crowd-raising. And I think that that makes it um, a kind of uh, optimum way of, of, of examining that exact question. Yeah, and another line about this that, that really kind of hits hard, Sonia has what she describes as a horrible, useless revelation, which was that in some way the meaning of our Hamlet depended on this suffering that is going on around them, just art as the ultimate exploitation. Right, which is a very cynical thing to feel. Um, but uh, in, some, in some way, sometimes that can feel true. I don't think it's always true, but sometimes that can feel true. It's the, what are the ethics of representation, that question of what does it mean to represent suffering? Does it incite the reader or the, or the watcher to, to action or is it, does something else happen? And that's kind of why I was sort of brought up catharsis a couple of times in the novel, because obviously catharsis, when you have a kind of cathartic experience at the end of a play in that old model, uh, you're released of those uncomfortable emotions that might urge you to act. So what does it mean if you don't have catharsis? And obviously Bertolt Brecht was somebody who deliberately tried to explore not giving an audience catharsis as a way to try and make them change the conditions in which they live. So how does this come down uh, to you? I mean, were there epiphanies for you about politics or political activism during the writing of, of this book? I don't know that I had any particular revelations about art and activism. Um, I think I definitely it's something I as a Palestinian making art, I, it's something I definitely think about. Um, and I think about the obligations of art and its, its use value or not. Um, and, and I guess that's a preoccupation of mine and a, and a kind of source of anguish in certain ways to be candid about it. Whether or not, whether or not I can be useful uh, is something that plagues me. But I don't think that I came to any conclusions, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I, think, I think we're all a little plagued by that. <laughs> um, such a joy to talk with you. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the book as well. Thank you so much for having me. That was Isabella Hamad in conversation with Barbara Bogave. Enter Ghost is out now from Grove Atlantic Press. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. 
If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under renovation for the past three years. But this fall, we'll be opening our doors again. Come visit us on Capitol Hill beginning November 17th, 2023. Take in a performance in our Elizabethan Theater and check out the world's largest collection of first folios, all 82, on display together for the very first time. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.